Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, co-founder and chief exec of Changeboard. Today, I'm joined by Amanda McKenzie, chief executive of Business in the Community, a Prince's Trust charity that promotes responsible business practice in the UK. Amanda has over 25 years of commercial experience, including director roles at British Airways, BT and British Gas. Prior to joining Business in the Community in 2016, Amanda sat on Aviva's Group Executive Board as part of the insurer's rebranding strategy. In this podcast, I ask Amanda about the importance of a business's social responsibility to its wider community, how we can promote digital inclusion in a changing world, and the role education and business has in preparing our young people for work. Thanks for listening to this Future Talent podcast. There are many more available to listen to or download on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Amanda, thanks for taking the time to have a, a chat with us. A pleasure. Um, Thank you've you. had a, a very a broad ranging and, and varied career, worked at British Airways, BT, British Gas and of, of course Aviva. Um, and you're now Chief Executive of Business in the Community. Um, how did that come about? What, what drew you into this role? Um, a couple of things, really. I, I think I realised um, more latterly, when people say you've got to find your purpose, actually, I think other people sort of find it, kind of find it for you slightly. Because um, when I did accept this job, the number of people said, oh, my goodness, that's a perfect job for you. And it was like, really? Um, <laughs> great. I'm glad, I I'm, I'm, I'm glad I found myself through you eventually. Um, I, I think the the parts of my old roles that I found most fascinating were those the social elements or the social responsibility elements of them. So you know, working at British Gas, thinking about how we're going to help those people that can't pay the gas bill, mm -hmm. that was very fascinating to me. At BT, thinking about the people that are not are are not naturally able to communicate and how we can help them through a telephone company, mm -hmm. which was then, which obviously then became a broadband company, etc., and everything else. Um, so I think that aspect of everything um, really was very fascinating. And then when we did the name change at Aviva, what we tried to do was think about the role of us as an insurance company, and then define what our corporate responsibility was almost as the reverse of that. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what insurance exists to do, how can our corporate responsibility be such that you're helping those very people that arguably would be excluded? Mm. And just think about all of that. And just picking that up, where was that driven from? Was that driven from chief exec? Was that something that came out of marketing? How did that way of looking at something evolve within Aviva? Um, uh, well, I think, uh, I, uh, do you know what, like all great ideas, I can't quite remember exactly no, how sure. it happened. At the time, we were defining, defining the brand strategy um, because we were changing the name and we mm. didn't want it to just be a change of name. Yeah. We did want it to be thinking Purposeful. about... Yes, and it's so much more than a change of name, to, to coin a phrase. So um, it, I think it came off the back of that because like anything, you know, good corporate responsibility is when it's intrinsic to the business, yeah. as we know, and I think increasingly more uh, as an inherent part of the business model quite apart from. But then if you do have specific programs on top, then you just have to define them in the context of that. It just made sense to so yeah. define it in the context of the brand. So to be honest, I think it came from a lot of the brand thinking and the agency work we were doing at that time. And it seemed like the obvious thing to do yeah and so it makes complete sense business in the community is sort of the 
you know, epitome of that yes. sort of sense of social responsibility. It is, and, and it's a real privilege to get to work with businesses to help them be better at responsible business and mm. be able to understand what it means and then help either convene so they learn from other leaders, uh, you know, their peers, or, you know, work with other companies to help them get better at this stuff. Yeah. So for those that aren't familiar with business in the community, yes. um, what what's the role and remit of business in the community? And then, I guess, and your role in terms of delivering that and your vision? Okay. Oh, gosh. Big question. so lofty on the, those <laughs> questions. Um, so my... Uh, well, business in the community exists to help create healthy communities with successful businesses at their heart. Mm-hmm. So I think we've sort of tried to, it, it feels a bit um, the other way around to the way you might expect me to have said that. But I think clearly the interrelationship between society and, and communities being healthy places, um, and by healthy mean healthy in every sense, is only possible because of the businesses around them. And mm-hmm. But frankly, this, the same is true. And I think if you are a business, you have a responsibility to be intrinsically good at responsible business and similarly really think about creating a thriving community in which you live and and work and clearly community in its broadest sense mm. so that's community across your supply chain into whichever country and then more principally because because of where we happen to be focused um in the uk where your 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 customers probably are and it feels very much part of the zeitgeist i would presume that businesses in a sort of post-brexit world are kind of sitting up and thinking about the implications of what's going on in the landscape of their customers, consumers. Um, Are you you feeling that? Has there been a change in in attitudes within business or are you working with businesses that get this in a very strong way and are very passionate about it and are constantly looking to do different things? Uh, Well, unlike most I mean, inevitably, we work with some businesses that do precisely that, are yeah. fantastic. They're leading the way. I, you know, I feel a fraud some days because I wonder what help we can actually be, but <laughs> being critical friend is good for them. Yeah. And also recognising them and telling those great stories because I think that will encourage others. Um, I think you've got others who are a bit slower to it, partly because they just don't know necessarily. And it's, I'm afraid this subject is, is, is sometimes a bit impenetrable. I'm not sure the language is always very helpful. Yeah. And actually, it's not always rooted in, in, in frankly, enlightened self-interest, which this all is. Yeah. You know, it is doing good by doing, or doing well by doing good. I always say that the wrong <laughs> way around. Um, so you've, you've got that going on. And then you've got probably some of the laggards who are going, do I really need to measure my carbon footprint? Can mm. I get away with not thinking about this stuff? Well, you know, when the planet's, you know, two degrees warmer and London's flooded or when, you know, society is so dislocated and broken that actually you don't have any customers in the future, well, probably you'll go, oh, dash, I wish I'd tuned in a bit sooner. So I think our job is slightly to to help them get on that. What I'm really encouraged about in the marketplace is you've got some really disruptive things coming along where things like the World Benchmarking Alliance are now looking at force ranking companies against the global goals Mm. and no importantly so that's the stick in a way the carrot is for the companies that are really good at this stuff potentially letting them get access to lower cost of capital so i think the role of investors that are now beginning to think about this and i um i forgive me i can check it but there's the world benchmark alliance are, are are convening investors and under assets under management who are beginning to think this way total something like 80 trillion pounds wow 
which is phenomenal. A lot of leverage. Yes. And I don't think the markets realise that the, the sort of leverage is there. When I was on the Davis Review, it, to be honest, it felt like the sort of last port of, port of uh, call, just going, but actually, why should we buy from companies that don't have boards that have got diversity? It's a similar thing. Yeah. It's like find a carrot <laughs> and find the stick yeah. and then just work through the implications of that across all your stakeholder groups. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, from my experience, if there's if there's justice and it's self-evidently a good thing, then once that's adopted, people can't go back. It's a bit like smoking in the workplace or yes. smoking on tubes, as you used to be able to do in London. <laughs> it seems incredible <laughs> it now, does. doesn't it? It does. And, and it was, it's self-evidently not something people want to go back to. Yes. Um, and if you can create that around, as you say, particular aspects of responsible business, um, that's a very powerful movement uh, for permanent change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just moving on to, uh, for kind of full disclosure, we're, we're, we're working in business in the community and yourself indeed at our upcoming conference in March, Future Talent Conference. Um, and you're chairing a, a panel discussion of uh, chief executives um, on the subject of digital inclusion. Um, and I know we're both kind of passionate as individuals and organizations, but before we get into that, um, talking about terminology that can sometimes be a little bit esoteric, what does digital inclusion mean to you? Well, I, I hope it's, it's what it, it, it could, should mean to everybody else too. But, but it's just that no one's left behind in this world that is potentially digital and therefore increase it for people that don't understand about this, that they are truly more and more dislocated from society because of it mm. um, it's easy that we take for granted that everyone seems to hold a smartphone and what yeah. have you but if genuinely you don't have if you're on a um, zero hours contract where you don't have a stable income that you can prove is 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 consistent over a period of time um, it's very hard to then get a phone contract which means you don't have a smartphone which means even jobs that are say cleaning jobs that would require you to be on point to go to different places that's all off an app yeah. you don't have access to that yeah. something as simple as that so that feels very wrong quite apart from a much uh, you know a generation or a group of people that in society are getting older generally and they need to understand the very basics of all of this stuff i just think that's what you know, like anything with the word inclusion, it just means including everyone. Yeah. And so just picking up in terms of, you know, people not having mobile phone uh, contracts or not having permanent residence and mm. then being excluded. Do you get involved in terms of regulatory lobbying, for example, to try and change those situations? Um, or are you trying to sort of work through businesses to to affect the change? Yes, I think our, our particular strength is when we'll work alongside business yeah. to help them look at their business model and go, is there any way you could help tackle this? Because mm. it's not always absolute, but there's, you know, I, I mean, I think even when McDonald's asked their w workers, did they want zero hours contracts or did they not? Mm. And did it suit them? So I think maybe in some instances it does suit people and that's fair enough yep. but i think for feeling that you have to have it so i think our absolute strength is when we work with employers and really begin to tackle some of this stuff um, and clearly i think that's a real benefit to the government if they know that we're able to to convene and to talk to lots of businesses and begin to shift some of this stuff yeah and looking looking in more detail in terms of what what these digital skills look like because there's a, a very broad range of, of of skills out there that could be classified as digital skills it's almost mm -hmm. like what's not digital <laughs> it's um, very true. nowadays um but 
one of the things we've talked about in roundtables where we've convened a, a number of kind of HR directors, for example, in our communities, is is the the narrative around um, the technological revolution that's going on. So artificial intelligence, um, the idea that robots are going to take over the world and displace people's jobs. And there seems to be, you know, there is a definite kind of dystopian narrative out there that's often driven by the by the media and they pick that up. Um, and one of the things we've discussed is is the power of telling counter stories uh, of of things that businesses are actually doing um, uh, in very practical ways um, to make it real so that other people can learn from that. Mm. Um, I mean, can you think of examples of that? Oh, um, lots, lots. So I will aim to remember them. Um, <laughs> And, and I would also say part of me, when you see those big numbers, I sort of want to go, and so what? Yeah. Because they are so massive. It's like, what can little me do today to help that? There's pretty much nothing. Mm -hmm. you know. And any number that's catastrophizing something is sort of irrelevant yeah. unless you bring it down to what's it mean for me and how can I change that outcome yeah. and how do I make it as local as possible? Mm -hmm. So if you're an employer, you go, okay, so I employ... I don't know, let's say, you know, 10,000 people, my response, I'm not saying that of me, I'm just saying, A, for instance. No, yeah. Um, what can I do to make sure that my people are as well prepared for the future world of work as they possibly can be? And, what, and, and can I go a little bit further than maybe I feel comfortable doing, because it might be a bit disruptive to me, to really help them cope with whatever the future comes? So given that we don't know where technology is taking us, in a way, what you're helping people cope with is being eminently flexible having a real culture of lifelong learning and really thinking about that. And I think when we see best practice, you've got everything from, you know, Barclays who do digital eagles. Yes. So they've got multiple thousand of their employees who are nobly teaching the public the basics of digital, which is lovely. It's yeah. a really lovely way to build relationships and teach people. And great for employee engagement. Yeah, They're doing absolutely. something in their communities, which is water off a duck's back yeah. to them. Yeah. It makes a massive difference in yes. terms of the quality of interaction they have yeah. with their customers. And then and, uh, Google, for instance, have come out slightly differently. And again, they realized that some basic digital skills is what people wanted. So they've been training and they set themselves a target of a million. They've already now trained three million. Mm -hmm. And they assumed that it would be predominantly men because it's famous in this in this world. That Actually, it's, it's nearly half women, Great. which is fabulous and exactly where we need it to be. So you've got that going on you've got unipart way are going right we created the unipart way have many you know decades ago long time ago it now needs to be fit for purpose in a digital world so they're redesigning that and bringing their employees in that way mm -hmm. you've got all sorts of companies that are now using technology to help their to links their that which links their older workers with their younger workers so i don't know be it hololens technology so a young engineer can work alongside an old engineer the young engineer being the sprightly physical one that's up a telegraph pole or up a down a pipe or doing something and they are effectively being tutored along with their older worker how lovely is that the older yeah. worker's got meaningful work the young person's learning from that but they're doing the physical work that feels lovely yeah. so you've got more and more of that so you're looking at how can our employees help the public get on top of this stuff what's their obligation to help their own workers get better at this stuff um, and then beyond that really using technology to link together those generations so you don't have a sort of digital divide amongst the generations quite apart from amongst the population no absolutely and, and are you are you seeing an appetite from employers 
to share knowledge, to collaborate on this? Definitely. I, I think everyone realises that, you know, a healthy society, healthy communities are for, are for everyone to go after. So we're definitely feeling that that's the case. Um, there's um, a lovely idea that's uh, being worked on by M&S and they're encouraging their other work, their, their workers to go, what's your secondary skills? So we're going to help you with digital. But actually, as we all know, when you get people, uh, you know, more in a more, more informal setting and you say, what do you do when you go home? Yeah. And they have the richest, most amazing lives. They're artists or musicians or, or, or whatever else. And actually, in a digital world, a lot of that can come to the fore more and be very enriching for their day jobs as well. Yeah. So they're sort of linking that and going, right, what's the digital implications of that? So they're getting, they're, so they're sort of more thinking about the whole self, which, as we all know, is incredibly important going forward. Indeed. Um, so I think there's all sorts of lovely things that are coming out about that. And as of people begin to share that, mm. I think in theory, it should lead to a much richer employee experience whatever company people are in. Yeah, and I, I think another another common interest between business in the community and change board is a is a passion for that sort of education to employment section. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing we all know is that employers are saying there's a mismatch. You know, yes. we can't find the right, call it employability skills. I don't really like that phrase, but soft skills, mm -hmm. the things that you're alluding to broader than digital that yes. um, there isn't a common language for. Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be quite an appetite amongst um, educators, leaders in schools, um, pushing back to employers and saying, well, you keep banging on about it. Tell us what they look like mm. um, so that we can, you know, s start talking to our, our pupils about that so that they can start doing relevant work experience or volunteering or feel confident enough to articulate things like teamwork or problem solving um, is that something that you can see some light at the end of the tunnel on? It, it seems to be, it seems like such an obvious thing for us to just once and for all, as you know, UK PLC agree half a dozen or a dozen employability skills and then describe what they look like. And then train them yes. or, or, or encourage people. Um, I'm not sure I do see light at the end of the tunnel. I see some incredible programs that are going on. Um, I see a lot of great learning that's going on, be it um, thinking about how you do careers training in schools, because that feels at a, at a middle manager level, and so really help that happen. Um, the careers enterprise uh, company are doing some really interesting stuff, but that's much more around creating role models so yeah. that people get an experience about business as opposed to actually training those employability skills. You know, um, uh I'm just trying to think of some of the companies that do really brilliant. Um, Mark Barclays, again, do life skills training, yes. which we, we do for them in, in uh, Northern Ireland and Wales and Scotland. Again, training uh, kids in the softer skills that they are going to need. So I think it, at a sort of there's some individual programs that are fabulous, but mapping them all together and scaling them and making sure that we do, as you say, create um, a workforce of the future that's genuinely employable I mean, mm. in every sense, or has got employability. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite part of the system yet. And I think the other thing that I know we're, our president's very keen that we look at is making sure that vocational training mm -hmm. is valued alongside academic training. And I think yes. uh, there's still a tendency for schools to prefer one over the other. Yeah. And that's much more part of the language. I do think it's, in, it's beginning to change in value, you know, um, and with all the work on apprenticeships and what have you. But that definitely needs to come to the fore. Mm. Like, you know, if you look at 
productivity in some of the other European countries and you look at apprenticeships in say Germany for instance mm -hmm. it's phenomenal how much more part of society they are and and proudly so mm. um, well it's the only all the research kind of shows McKinsey have done umpteen reports mm. on it that in Germany uh, apprenticeships or non-higher education routes have the same social standing exactly. same social capital as higher education routes um so if you think about it, they're at a completely different stage of kind of launch or evolution mm. in terms of how they upskill their workforce yes. right across um, their, their, their labour force. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the government published its career strategy in the middle of December and they, they talked, for example, about every school from September this year, 2018, having, having a, a careers leader. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and also having you know a responsibility to describe to young people um, the alternatives so apprenticeships yeah. uh, T levels which are going to be yeah. coming in um, and I think business wants to get behind this mm, um, but they just don't seem to have the mechanisms to do that currently yeah I think that's probably fair I think they'll become clearer though it's curious though to me though that you know how many years ago. 60 years ago, 50 years ago, apprenticeships and people being, I, I can't, there's a, um, is it an indenture? What's yes. To a particular company. I remember um, Colin Sharman, Lord Sharman, who was the chair of Aviva a, a few ago. He showed me his certificate of when, you know, and he never went to university. He became the chair of KPMG. Yeah. Incredible guy. But he, that's how he started. He, he absolutely started in that way. And that was... He was massively proud of that, but importantly, society was proud of him too. Yes. So it, it's within our gift because it, we used to do it and somehow we lost it. Yeah. Um, so I, whilst we've definitely got a lot to learn from Germany and we should think about that, uh, it's, luckily, I don't think it's so far away, but we just do need, and I guess as you rightly said, it's, as much as anything else, it's employees really embracing that because those graduate level apprenticeships now are coming through. Yeah. And, and I think in many ways, I think employee employers are ahead of the curve versus um, educationalists. Mm. I'm now going to be shot down by every educationalist that would be very frustrated. But yeah. we see some of the wonderful operational apprentice, apprenticeships that people are doing, and it is fantastic. Well, I, I, I can... Talking, 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 kind of conscious of time. Um, I think in terms of looking at your kind of broader vision for, for your role and business in the community, what are the sort of things on, on the horizon for you that you're particularly focused on in the next 12 months? Okay, so I'm going to work a little bit backwards from maybe a bit further than 12 months. But, you know, for me, the, the, I think you always have to define a charity based on what would it take for us not to exist. Mm -hmm. So if every business in this country or every business operating in this country was the best it could be at responsible business knew what it was you know mapped it indexed it and then worked out how to get better at it every single year if yeah. every company was on that trajectory i could probably skip off to the circus so yeah. i think there's a bit of a way to go on that but frankly we've got to make it very clear of you know what does responsible business entail let's start measuring it really thoroughly and let's which we have done in the past at a company level and then let's contract if you like with companies to say great are you willing to get better at this stuff every year and here's how yeah so i think i want a sort of very vibrant membership that's that, that wants to embark on that mm -hmm. and wholeheartedly get better at responsible business and then convene them increasingly together so we're getting some collective strength and some compound impact in places be it 
our most some of our most deprived parts of the UK. At the moment, we're looking at Blackpool, Wisbeach, Redcar, increasingly Grimsby, Bradford, Oldham, where actually bringing the power of business to help those local communities can really create some blueprints that we can then have, you know, and knowledge that then everyone can share and be part of. And clearly, it's working very then very closely with government and third sector um, to do that. So it's it's kind of simple. I want us to really start creating healthy communities with successful businesses at their heart. Yeah. Um, and we will do that by ensuring that companies really, really do get after this agenda themselves and make it intrinsic. I think that's the thing. Yeah. And, and how, how can they do that? Where within the organization do they have to buy into this for sustainable change to happen? Who are the kind of key people within organizations that you are trying to engage trying to take with you on this journey? Well, I, I mean, if I could wave a wand, every single executive committee member would be thinking about how their function can contribute to this. Yeah. You know, so if you are the person that's the product person, yeah. how are you living the circular economy in the products you design? Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a plastics round table going on tomorrow. Um, you know, we know there's so much that can be done in this to really, yeah. really make some change. You know, are you able with a big procurement budget to put a proportion of that through social enterprise? With your marketing, are you really thinking about are you marketing for purpose and genuinely living it? Mm -hmm. You know, so I think every functional leader has a role to play. Clearly, the CEO has to buy into this and, and be really happy that this is enlightened self-interest yeah you know i mean great if you want to just do it because it's the right thing to do but know that there is a business case behind it and then clearly we you know that the the responsible business army lies in everyone who works for any of these companies yeah. because if everybody's calling it out and saying every day you know what i think we can do a bit more i'm not sure that's the right thing to do you know let us as a team go through the sleep toolkit which we launched yesterday so everyone's vibrantly living that as an organisation, we have to make that easy for everyone, and I'm conscious that we maybe haven't always in the past, so we've got to do that. But that's it. You know, everyone's got to think about this stuff. It's no longer, you know, all big lofty... It's not a nice to have. No, and big lofty sort of emotional, inspiring speeches are great, but frankly useless mm -hmm. if they don't then drive action and commitment that is then reported and move stuff on. Yeah. Which ties in back to the kind of the, the investment community as well. Yes. If there's a great big business positive and yeah. access to capital at different rates, cheaper rates, if you if you yeah. go on this journey, then it becomes a very kind of uh, yeah. a positive cycle. Um, we were talking just before we started this conversation about sleep. Um, and, and, and I can't resist asking <laughs> you about the, some of your most inspiring current reading. Oh, well, I'm reading the book, Why Do We Sleep? by Matthew Walker. Um, and it is phenomenal. It's beautifully written science, which but isn't doesn't get too gobbledygook about science. Um, but the the overarching thing is, it is it is appalling if we let our people not have access to um, eight hours sleep a night, and somehow we have to think about that. And um, because it, it is on every possible level, it is good for us and our on our well-being. But importantly, the degradation in our work and quality of our work if we haven't slept well. There, no employer should actually be wanting someone who's p poorly performing because they haven't had enough sleep. Yeah, and and as a leader, how aware are you personally of your own kind of well-being, um, work-life balance? Well, I've always sort of said to people, I don't have a work-life balance, um, but, but I think 
I think over a lifetime it'll balance out, if yeah. I'm honest. Uh, so I'm what do you do to switch off? What do you do outside of work? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I love cooking um, and I love playing the piano and I used to sing but I'm hideously rusty but very excitingly as of about two weeks time I'm going back to having singing lessons again fantastic very good well pity, Ama- pity the poor singing teacher but hey <laughs> Amanda it's been a real pleasure talking to you um thank Indeed, you very much like for one. your time thank you You can hear more from Amanda at this year's Future Talent Conference at the Royal Geographical Society in London on the 22nd of March, where she'll be hosting a panel discussion on digital inclusion. Business leaders joining that panel include City and Guilds Group Chief Exec Chris Jones, Peter Cheese, Chief Exec of the CIPD, Moya Green, Chief Exec of Royal Mail, and Elizabeth Fagan, MD of Boots. We will also be hosting Alistair Campbell, who will discuss how we can change the lens on mental health. Chief Executive of the RSA, Matthew Taylor, who will be reflecting on the response to his report into modern working practices, and Margaret Heffernan, who will be exploring the importance of forging friendships at work. Thank you for listening. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon. <laughs>